I'd like to uh, say once again how much I appreciate the missions committee for all the work that they put into last weekend and um, pre preparing and executing our missions conference and for all the work that they do year round to promote the cause of world missions and, and even local missions right here uh, within our church. This church has a, a long history of missions emphasis and uh, we've, we've supported missionaries, we've gone out as missionaries, we've raised up and sent become missionaries. Um, and my hope, and the Board of Stewards shares that hope with me, and we pray together that we will not only continue that great uh, history of missions emphasis, but that we would be a church that would put even more of our energy and resources into being turned out towards our community and towards our world. That the whole culture of this church would be increasingly moving more towards what I'm calling missional living and giving and going. It's all of it. It's how we live. It's how we give. It's in our going. It's in our sending. Um, I want that. We want that. And I know you want that too, to be the very uh, life and breath of this church. There's a burning desire in the heart of God to bring the nations to himself. And we want to be a church that burns for that too. And so this morning, as we dive into a new missions-focused sermon series, I think you saw the graphic on the screen a moment ago, uh, for the month of October, we're going to begin by turning to a passage in Romans chapter 5, and maybe you detected a theme already in the, in the songs that we've been singing on the love of God. That's what we're going to be focusing on here this morning. So please turn to Romans chapter 5 if you happen to grab a, uh, a, a guest Bible back there, which by the way, if you don't own a Bible and you would like one, or if you don't have one in the translation that I read from, uh, you're not only welcome to borrow that Bible on Sundays, you're welcome to keep it. Or perhaps you know someone that doesn't have a Bible and you want to give it as a gift. Please, uh, that's what they're there for. They're our gift to you. So please grab one if you need it. Uh, we'll be on page 906 this morning. So Romans chapter 5, uh, reading beginning in verse 6 down through verse 11. Hear the Apostle Paul when he says, when, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who was especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since the friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Right there in the heart of that passage, Paul writes, God has shown us his great love. Now, the Greek language in which the New Testament was written, it has, as many of you know, a variety of words that uh, we would translate into English as love, but they don't all mean exactly the same thing. In his marvelous work, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis takes sort of a tour through these different words and, and explains sort of how, what's unique to each of them and how they relate to, to the other. Um, and, he, and he starts with the first three, which he calls the natural loves. That is storge, or familial love, the type of love a, a mother and a child have for one another, or, or a, 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 a cousin, or someone close to you, a, a natural type of, 
of, of a feeling of affection that you have for someone close in your life. He talks about philia, which is like a brotherly love or like a close friendship. And then thirdly, he refers to eros, which is romantic or sexual type of love. But the word Paul uses here in Romans chapter 5 is none of those words. No, it is the Greek word, which you know as agape, which Lewis calls charity. And when he calls it charity, he's not, he's not talking about sort of the, the handouts you give the people you feel sorry for or the people who are, are in need. That's, that's how we reduce the word charity to something very specific to mean that. But when Lewis talks about charity, he's talking about divine love, that type of love that God gives, that God shares, even that God himself is, agape. You need look no further than the life of Jesus to get a preliminary sketch of what makes agape love unique from the natural loves. First and foremost, and perhaps above all else, we see in Christ that agape love is self-giving. Early in The Four Loves, Lewis makes this distinction between what he calls need love, that is love that serves the self. I love an object because of what it does for me, what it does to me, what I can receive from it, versus gift love, which isn't based on what is received by the object of love. Gift love is that is not that which serves the self, but that which serves the other. So need love versus gift love. Now need love loves what is naturally lovable. And you can already, you're thinking of, of scenarios in your life of objects of love that are very natural to you. They're easy to love, they're, they're lovable. And so need love tends to focus on those things at the expense of the alternative. Whereas gift love goes beyond that. And you see that in the life of Jesus as he lives among and heals and serves and loves the worst of the worst, not just the, the, the people that are natural for him to love or, or the ones that are logical for him to love or the ones who have something to give to him in response to his, his love. No, he loves the worst of the worst. Lepers and tax collectors and all sorts of kinds of sinners, people who had nothing to offer him in return, people who had nothing who had done nothing to deserve his love. They were objects of his gift love, not of any type of need love. And that's what Paul's referring to here in our passage as I read it a moment ago. Look again there in verses 6 through 8. When we were utterly helpless. In other words, we weren't the abled, we were the disabled. There's nothing we could do. There's nothing we could offer. There's nothing, we could nothing that we could give him in response that would earn somehow his love. No, it is why we were utterly helpless. Christ came and died. For whom? The righteous? The, the lovely? The, the people who have earned it in some form or fashion? No. He died for us sinners. And most people you know would not, would not do such a thing. We wouldn't die for a righteous person. Paul says perhaps some might be willing to die for someone who is especially good. Maybe someone who's, who's really important you know, who's really meant a lot to you or has really done the thing for you, we might consider that. But that's not the love of God in Christ. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Not especially good. Not especially righteous. In fact, we are especially wicked. None of us have deserved the love of God in Christ. None of us have anything to offer him that he needs. Agape seeks the good of the love, the love object for the, the object's own sake. 
That's, that's a far cry from a need-based love that, that often loves based on the object's merit or what the object can do in return. That's not the love of God. This is real agape, John says in 1 John 4.10. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. If you want to know where the clearest picture of the agape love of God can be found, we'll look no further than in the cross of Christ where God's love took on flesh and was given away for the sake of the world. Secondly, agape is not only selfless, it is hospitable. Or alternatively, we can say it makes room for the other. In John 15, 9, Jesus says this, and I love this passage, and you know it well. He says, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. So he's talking about the love he's talking about with which he has loved his disciples is the exact same kind of love that the Father and the Son share within the triune Godhead. So this is a radical statement that that gives us a crystal clear picture of not only what God is like, but what his intention is for those who follow Jesus. I have loved you the same way the Father has loved me and I have loved him. And therefore, what is the implications of that? The next thing he says is, abide in my love. Abide in it. Don't just receive it which you need to receive the love of God. But God wants, Jesus wants those who love him and believe him and follow him to remain in it, to abide in it, to take up residence in the love of God. This past Lent, if you were with us in Bible study on Wednesday nights, you might remember in our journey through the Upper Room Discourse, we talked uh, deeply about the inner life of the triune God and how each person within the Godhead is in the other. So the life of the Father is in the Son, and the life of the Son is in the Father, and the life of the Spirit is in the Father and the Son, and the life of the Father and the Son are in the Spirit. It's this incredible picture of persons who interpenetrate and and share a, a communion and an intimacy in life that is love itself. It's powerful when we take time to consider that. And then it's staggering when we hear Jesus say, That same love that is the Father, Son, and Spirit and that they share is what he gives to us. And and he does it in such a way where he makes room within himself for people who are not him to be in him. He creates space within himself for you and for me. Because agape love carves out room for the other. It is, by the very definition, invitational. It welcomes. It is hospitable. Jesus invites the worst of the worst in the world to come and dwell in him. Come be in me. Abide in my love, in who I am, in all they offer, in everything that I want to do. Come and and camp out right here in the center of it all. The other day I was... uh, working on this message and I got a a random text from my wife and it had a picture of our three kids from uh, seven years ago. And I've asked uh, them in the booth to put that up there for you. I know I've just utterly humiliated two of my three children and I apologize for that. It's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. Um, In this case, I normally ask for permission. This time I I just didn't uh, because I really wanted to see those stinking cute faces um, look at that little cheeseburger, by the way. It's just, I can't bear it. It, it just is too much for me. Um, you can put that down now so that my children are no longer, no longer humiliated. Um, 
looking at that picture and reflecting on just where seven years have gone, I mean, it just, it blows, it blows me away. Uh, you know, they say that the days are long, uh, but the years, they're short. They're short. And you blink, and your children are now all grown. And everyone in here who has kids knows exactly what I'm talking about. I heard someone mention the other day uh, that that season of COVID where, where people, you know, stopped coming to church. And, you know, some churches, they did that for a year, a year and a half, maybe even two years. And, and the observation was, well, when they all came back, all the kids were like, here. It's like you blink and they grow up. And as Becca and I were reflecting on that, or we had tears in our eyes as we looked at those sweet faces and wondered where the years had gone. But I mention that to you because our decision, just like every family's decision when they choose to have their children, our decision to create a family and to commit our time and our resources and our priorities to raise children and then the bearing of them at the level of the heart, somewhere in the midst of that, all of that begins to approximate the love of God. It's a snapshot. It's not perfect. There's no perfect family. There's no perfect situation at home. We all have our struggles and our, we mess things up. And you're, you probably came in here this morning, if you, trying to get, you know trying to get kids from bed to pew is maybe the hardest thing in the world to do. And so you know what I'm talking about. There's, there's not perfect, but somehow in the midst of that, where we create and commit and bear at the level of the heart, somehow in there, when we create room for another, my wife and I were, were wonderfully happy in our marriage before we had children. We were. But the, the beautiful thing about love is that it seeks to, to grow. It's not curved in on itself. It's turned out. And the, the most natural, not just biological, but just in every sense of the word, the natural outflow of our union as a husband and a wife is to make room for more. And that's a picture of God who's perfectly self-sufficient within himself. He didn't need the world. He didn't need to create anything. Persons in perfect communion from eternity past. And yet out of that, he creates and out of that, he invites. Out of that, he shares. And he welcomes. He creates room within himself for the other. Because agape is hospitable. God is agape, John says in his first epistle. And Paul says here in verse 11, Jesus Christ has made us friends with him. Lastly, and by no means is this meant to be an exhaustive list, this is just a preliminary sketch of agape. We could spend days, weeks, months, whatever, you know, plumbing the depths. I think we, we just sang about that a second ago. You know, that there's, there's no way we could ever exhaust talking about the love of God. And you and I, who are Christians, and one day we'll, we'll be together in heaven, when, well, actually, when heaven comes to earth, and this world is renewed, and we are forever enfleshed, spirits living in glorified bodies forever and ever, we will spend the rest of eternity just scratching the surface. 
So this is not meant to be any exhaustive list of what agape is. But lastly, on my list of this preliminary sketch is this. Love is self, agape love is, is selfless. It is hospitable. And lastly, thanks be to God, it perseveres. It doesn't quit. And it doesn't end. The opening line of that upper room discourse that I referred to a moment ago from John chapter 13 in verse 1 says this, Before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were with him in the world, he loved them, don't miss this, to the end. He loved them to the end. All the way, not just part of the way. Friends can come and go. Sexual desire may wax and wane. But the agape love of God never, ever ever ends. And there's nothing in this world that can separate you from it. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's a good place to say amen if you're the people of God this morning. Now, in his own reflections on Lewis's discussion of the four loves, there's a, a brilliant Catholic professor of philosophy at Boston College named Peter Kreeft, who says this about agape. These are his own reflections on what Lewis was writing on, on the word. He says, agape is not a feeling. It is not a feeling. Kreeft says, feelings come passively <laughs> from wind Weather and digestion. I like that. All sorts of things cause us to have feelings, don't they? That's not agape love. No, agape is not a feeling. Agape is intentional. It is the result of free choice. God did not love you because he felt like it at the moment. God loved you because he freely chooses and continues to choose to love. It's essential to his nature, and it is a free choice. Jesus himself had all sorts of different feelings about all sorts of different people, but he loved them all equally and absolutely. And that is very different than the type of love with which many of us tend to love others around us, where it's situational, it's conditional, it's contingent, it's need-based. That's not the love of God. Secondly, Crave refers to love, uh, agape love when he says its object is always the concrete individual, or I would, I prefer the word person here. He, he it's, it always focuses on the person, not some abstraction called humanity. Crave says love of humanity is easy because humanity does not surprise you with inconvenient demands. You never find humanity on your doorstep stinking and begging. You know, humanity doesn't just show up one day and ask something of you. Humanity doesn't push you to your limits. No, persons do that. Persons hurt you. Persons cross you. Persons irritate you. Persons snore in the bed next to you. Don't look at your wife, Robert. She's pointing at you, buddy. Persons don't forget your anniversary. Now, no, none of you guys look at your wives right now. Persons forget your anniversary. Persons 
disobey and undermine your authority. Humanity doesn't do that. No, people do that. People do all the million of things that agitate and hurt and frustrate you. Jesus loved and ministered to and died for and offers himself continually, even now, not to some impersonal humanity, but to you and to me. Persons who have no business in this world being recipients of his goodness and grace. I'm the snorer. I'm the forgetful one. I'm the irritating one. I'm the demanding one. I'm the hurtful one. I'm the the disobedient one. And guess what? So are you. I'm sure you've heard people say this cliche. If you were the only person in the world, Jesus would still have died for you. As if it's some hypothetical. Well, listen, it's not a hypothetical. He did. He did die for you as if you were the only one who ever lived. Because he didn't die for generic humanity. He died for persons And it is this reality that changes a life. It changes my life. It changes your life. Anyone who comes face to face with the personal love of God. It's what changed the life of John Wesley when he was at that Bible study on Aldersgate Street, May 24th, 1738, as the preface to the, Luther's preface to the epistle of Romans was being read. How about that? His life was changed listening to Luther's comments before he even got to the the Bible. As, as the, the preface of it was being read, Wesley writes this about his life. He said, I felt in that moment, it was a distinct moment in time, he, he could mark the, the second it happened, I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. yes. Jesus is the new Adam. And yes, in Jesus, all of humanity is, is, re, is redeemed. And yes, he has taken our sinful nature and he has restored it. He has healed it. And he has made it what it was supposed to be. But Jesus' death and resurrection and all of its benefits for humanity must be applied to you personally. You yourself have to receive it for yourself He didn't just die for the generic whole. He died for all of its parts. Every single one of you, he gave his life that you could live. And Wesley says, in that moment, and Wesley was raised in the church, and he had been, he he was an ordained minister of the gospel. He had been a missionary. He was doing more and understood more and believed in more than you and I have, will ever hope to in our lifetime. Just read the, the life of Wesley and the stuff that he accomplished. Brilliant man, brilliant mind, brilliant heart. But it wasn't until that moment that it clicked. That everything that I th- believe and, th- and think, it was, it's not only true, but he did it all for me. Even me. God agapes persons. And thirdly, Kreft makes this observation. Agape is more than mere kindness. He says kindness is the desire to relieve another's suffering. But love is the willing of another's good. And here's a tough truth as we think about that statement. In a broken world like ours, suffering sometimes 
is essential to love. I mean, I tell my kids that every time I've ever had to discipline them. Their suffering is essential to real love because we live in a broken world. The Bible doesn't say that God is our grandfather, does it? Now, you grandpas are out there. You know exactly where I'm going with this. The Bible doesn't say that God is our grandfather. God is what? Father. God is father, and the difference is huge. You know, my my dad was, was great at both. He was a tremendous father, especially considered considering the example he was given. The fact that dad was the man he was, the fact that dad had even become half the man he was, is nothing short of a miracle that, that can only be explained by the, the grace of God and, and my dad's openness and willingness to let that grace transform his life. He was a tremendous father. Wasn't perfect, but I wouldn't have traded him for the world. Dad was also a great grandfather. <laughs> but listen, as grandfather, he lived to spoil his grandchildren. <laughs> Didn't he? <laughs> yeah. He lived to spoil his grandchildren as grandfather, but as father, he disciplined the sin right out of me. God's not the great grandfather in the sky who exists to spoil you. Despite the portrayal in the media, I think of some of you from my generation remember The Simpsons back in the day. Maybe you were allowed to watch it, maybe you weren't. I wasn't allowed to, but I don't tell my mom this, I did anyway. Uh, the depiction of God in The Simpsons is the old man in the sky with the big gray beard who's there to do the, the grandfatherly thing for you, the grandfather figure. That's not God. No, he's not the great grandfather in the sky who exists to spoil you. He is the loving father who wills your ultimate good, even if it means permitting suffering in your life. Now, that's not to say grandfathers don't love. Don't hear me wrong. I just think it's helpful to make this distinction in order that we might better understand what exactly agape is. And you and I need to understand it. Because agape is, is what God is. That's what the scripture says. God is agape. God is love. But not only that. That is what God wants to define us as those who follow him and believe in him and live for him. It's not just God's truth. It is to be our truth. It's what Jesus commands of us. That's the greatest commandment. If you take all of the law and all of the prophets and everything in the Bible and you boil it down to say, what do I need to know most? Jesus says it is this, love God. With all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, everything that is you, love him with it all and love your neighbor as yourself. How's that for a summary statement? The greatest commandment sums everything up in a, in a, in a single sentence. And the natural loves, they don't stand on their own. They're not enough. That's not what he's talking about. He doesn't say storge, God. He doesn't say philia, God. He doesn't say eros, God. That's weird. No, agape, God. 
Not that those other loves are, are inherently bad. God created that. He created you to have those types of loves in your life. They're the natural loves. But they've been perverted with sin, haven't they? So what you and I need isn't to wipe those kinds of loves out of, our, out of our lives as if they don't matter or they're not worth anything. What you and I need is for those loves to be transformed by divine love. We need that divine love to come into those loves and change them. Lewis compares it to the incarnation where God himself in his son takes on real flesh. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of the father, the second person of the Trinity stepped into history and he took on flesh and blood and bones just like every one of us in here have. He was a real man. He was a perfect man. He was everything man was supposed to be and yet he remained perfectly God. Perfect man, perfect God. His divinity did not take on humanity and extinguish it somehow. Humanity wasn't, you know, evaporated or diluted or whatever word you want. It wasn't extinguished. It wasn't snuffed out. It wasn't like God showed up and, he, and man doesn't matter anymore. No, his divinity infused humanity and made his humanity everything it was ever meant to be. And in the same way, God's love must come into and mold and shape and transform your love of family, your love for friends, your love for your lover, your, your spouse, your, the, that person in your life, that romantic person in your life. His love must come into those things and mold and shape and transform and turn them into everything they were meant to be. And that's your only hope in this life of ever truly loving your spouse. You cannot love your husband. You cannot love your wife based on natural love alone. Because the, the, the condition of man is such that we have broken and perverted it all. It's the only hope to truly love your family, your neighbors, your friends, or complete strangers anywhere in the world. The only hope is an infusion of divine love that permeates and touches every bit of your life. And listen, there is nothing in the world more beautiful and sweet than when human relationships are infused with agape. A love that gives the self away. A hospitable love that makes room for the other. Even, and I would say especially, the unlovable especially the difficult, the irritating. A love that doesn't quit. Even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. You want a picture of a love that doesn't quit when it's hard? Look to the cross. That, that is the only hope for our marriages in today. It's the only hope. That's the only thing that perseveres is that kind of love infused into the center of a man and wife's union. Because the hardest thing in the world to do is to stay married to another human being apart from the love of God, which is more than feeling. It's action, intentional, 
deliberate, premeditated. It's more than some general vague thing. It's personal. It begins right, right here. (laughs) With those closest to you. That's where it starts. It doesn't end there, but it begins there. It's more than kindness, being nice. No, it's persons willing the good of the other. And you might be saying, Pastor Sean, that sounds great. Thank you. Thank you for this beautiful, well, maybe it's not beautiful. I'm sure no one out there is thinking this is beautiful. But I'm pretending for a minute that you think this is beautiful. This beautiful depiction and description of the love of God. Thank you for it. And thank you for the challenge that, you know, somehow it's supposed to define my life too. But I know me. You don't know me. You don't know what's in my life. I know what's in some of your lives, but I don't know what's in all of your lives. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know who's hurting me. You don't know who's doing this to me. You don't know what has happened or how I'm broken, how I'm scarred. You're right. And you're thinking, you don't know what's going on. How can any of this really be possible in my life? And the answer is both a challenge, but it's also freeing. Because the challenging part, and it will sound discouraging when I say it, but don't be discouraged. The challenging part is you can't. You can't. None of us can. Because we're broken. None of us can love like this. You don't have agape within you, naturally. Agape does not come from some deep reservoir that you have hiding in there somewhere. If you can just find it, if I can just find agape, I can release it, and then it comes out. No, agape comes from outside. It's not within you. It comes from outside of you. It's divine. It's not natural love. It's divine love. So that's the challenging part. But the good news, all the the good news, is that God wants to fill you with it. God wants to put it in you. And because it is essential to his nature, and because God himself is eternal, and God himself is inexhaustible, it means there's no limits to that reservoir, that flowing flood that wells up from within, that living water that Jesus referred to that that wells up within, not because we have it there, but because he puts it there. The Holy Spirit puts it there, and it bubbles up, and it wells up, and it overflows. That is your hope for your marriage and for your family and for all of your relationships and for the world, for the love of God to come from outside of you and to be put within you so that it comes out of you. The very verse before the one I started reading from today says this thing. Verse five, I I saved it for the end for a reason. In fact, it is the true scripture passage for this morning. Look at verse five. He says, we know how dearly God loves us Because he has given us his Holy Spirit to do what? To fill our hearts with his love. Agape, in the middle of you. Endless. There's no limit to it. You might say, how can I love my husband? How can I love my wife to the end of the day? Agape. Because agape never runs out. It is only agape that can get you from here to there. In your toughest trial, in your greatest hardship, when you feel like you can't stand the person next to you, when they're, they're ugly to you and they smell and everything you say is stupid and they irritate you and they hurt you and they've broken, they've broken your heart, it is only then when you can love them. It is only then 
when, when God infuses his love into the center of your being, that you have any hope of persevering to the end. And you can, and you must. Because what defines God, he wants to define you and me. His love at the very center of your soul, bubbling up, welling up endlessly through good and through bad, through thick and through thin. You don't have to muster it up within yourself. You can't. It has to come to you by his grace. Only a supernatural act of God can transform our hearts to love like he does. And that, by the way, is a great summary statement of what we call sanctification. Sanctification. That supernatural work of grace that is both gradual, yes, there's a gradual component to it, but there's also an instantaneous component to it too. What God can do in a person's heart in an instant, in space and time, whereby he makes that heart holy in love. Sanctification is not becoming sinless in some sort of absolute perfection sense of the word. And there have been a lot of good holiness churches that have reduced holiness and sanctification to something like that, and that is not what it is. No, sanctification is God making your heart able to love like he loves. Not perfect, not perfection, absolute perfection, but perfect love. And that's what, that's what he offers you. That's what he offers me. That's, that, is, that is our salvation, to be made like him. Not just to be rescued from punishment, but to be delivered into his life, to become everything that he is, where I can freely give myself away in love, where I can make room in my heart for the other, where I'm not just emotional, I'm not just doing something passively as things happen to me, but I'm intentional and I'm deliberate and I'm freely giving myself to another. His grace can do that in you. His grace can free you. His grace can enable you to give yourself away just like Jesus. And when that happens, I love what Christ says here. He says, when that happens, the donor becomes the recipient. Think about that for a second. The donor becomes the recipient. In other words, when you give yourself, you're giving yourself away, and when that happens, you find a more real and a more new self given to you. Jesus said something to this effect, didn't he, in Matthew 16, when he says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, whoever gives his life away for my sake will do what? You'll find it. It's the great paradox of following Jesus. We think that the, the search for, for meaning and for my real identity, who I really am, is something that we have to dig deep inside to do. No, Jesus says, you want to find the real you, give yourself away. It's only when you lose your life, when you surrender it all, you give it to him, all for his sake, that he says, now you will begin to understand who you really are. Because the donor becomes recipient. When his life comes into us, he becomes our life. My identity is in him. Only ever in him am I really Sean Scribner. Only in Christ are you ever who you are actually supposed to be. You'll never find it in yourself because you weren't created to be for yourself. You were created in the image of God who is, by definition, persons giving themselves to one another in love. You want to find you? Imitate that. Let that become your reality by grace through faith. When you put your trust in Jesus, that's exactly what he does. He makes you like himself. 
God is love. It is essential to his nature. From it, he created the world. He gave himself to redeem it, and he makes room in his heart for you. And so as we begin, well, we kind of began last week with the missions conference, but as we continue now, this, this emphasis and this, this time of considering things like missions and outreach, well, none of it really makes any ultimate sense. And there is no real driving force behind it. It's not even possible to do apart from agape. That's the thrust. That's the power. That's the purpose. The gospel is both our pattern and our power. When we were helpless, Paul says, Christ came and gave himself away, and by his power, now so can you. God showed his great love by sending Christ to die, and by his power, so must we. Send in a giving of life for another. I know God wants someone in here to be a missionary. Some ones in here to be a missionary, maybe for a week, maybe for a month, maybe for the rest of your life. Oh, wouldn't it be beautiful if this is a church where that, thing, that kind of thing happens so organically and so regularly that it defined who we were as a church? This church doesn't just give to missions. This church gives missionaries. We've done it before, and I know he wants to do it again. Paul says, friendship with God is restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies. You ready to give your life away for an enemy? Can't do it on your own, can you? But the gospel, the life-changing good news of Jesus is not only that you can, but that you must. That's the hope of the world. By his Holy Spirit's presence and power at work in our lives, we can offer a gift love of agape to every person we clothe and feed, every stranger we welcome, every hurting person we touch, every prisoner we visit. And he will do it in the hearts of the open and in the willing and in the believing. That's the key. All of God's grace comes by how? Say it with me. Through what? Faith. How do you receive God's grace? Faith. You trust him to, to forgive you. You put your faith in him to forgive you. Great. You trust in him to, to invite you into heaven. You have faith to receive that. Great. But do you trust and believe in him to sanctify your heart to love like he does? It's all by faith. By grace through faith. He's not going to zap you one day and you're going to wake up able to love. No, you have to ask him to do it and trust him to do it. And say yes to him when he wants to. The love of God shed abroad in the soul of man. Let us pray. Lord, I know many of the people in this room deeply. Most of them, I would say, I know quite well. Some of them just barely and, and others may be new, but I know that throughout this room there are men and women and young men and young women who have said yes, not just to your justifying grace that makes them right in your sight. But they've said yes to your sanctifying grace that they would be transformed and molded and shaped after your own likeness in beautiful, holy love. But Lord, there are others who, who need to say yes to that. Perhaps we as a church need to say yes to that 
It's not enough to, to rest on some past decision or past experience of God. You are here today offering yourself to these persons. May we be a people who will say yes to you, to everything that you are, everything that you want to do. Lord, come and sanctify this church. Make us perfect in love for you and for the world. Lord, it is then when we can even begin to start talking about missions where it's not need love. Oh, it's gift love. <laughs> not loving the naturally lovable or the, the near or the ones who have something to give us, but natural, loving the unlovable, the far, who have nothing to give in return. That, that is what missions has to be. And Lord, we can't even begin to even think about it apart from you at work in our lives. So come and have your way. Even now as people are praying, I hope it's not just me praying right now. I hope it's every person in this room asking you, God, sanctify my heart. Cleanse it of all sin. Empower me for godliness. Make my love whole and complete. Come and dwell in me. I decrease completely that you might increase to the fullness. Lord, may that be true for every person here this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.